to Freshly Forever, a podcast that gives you fascinating insights week after week. Here's your host, Vai Kumar. Hey folks, we are getting to the time of the year when everyone wants to start their home garden. And our guest today is Stephanie Hafferty. She is an organic, no-dig kitchen gardener, plant-based cook, award-winning food and gardening writer. She is a small-scale homesteader and mom of three. Stephanie is the author of two great books, No Dig Organic Gardening with Charles Dowding and Creative Kitchen. She is also working on another wonderful book, which is coming later this year. Uh, Stephanie is a blogger, a public speaker. She is an edible garden design consultant. She's a garden produce preserver. She's a garden produce cook, wildlife protector, maker of homegrown body care. It's my honor and privilege to welcome her on the show. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to Podcast Freshly Forever. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. It's nice to be here. So gardening and no-dig gardening, you're an expert at that. But if you can uh, tell us how uh, you got connected to gardening and how did you foster that passion, I think that'll be a great starting point for the listeners. Okay. Well, I've always liked growing things. I used to have um, little plants on my windowsill when I was a little girl. Uh And I've always liked being outside. But actually, what really got me into growing vegetables um, was a desire to make homemade wine. So (laughs) I was I was in my I was about 16, 17. And I found in a charity shop an old book on making country wines. And I thought this is a good idea. And um, so even though the drinking age here is 18 and not 16 or 17, I got into making homebrew (laughs) and um, started to grow um, different plants that I could make wine from. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how it started off. It was teenagers wanting um, drink, basically. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then that's been uh, several years now, as I yes. said. Yes. Okay. That was a long time ago. So from then I went to university and um, didn't really have uh, much of a garden, just pots on the windowsill. And it was when I'd finished university and got my first job that I was able to have um a garden to grow vegetables and herbs in of my own. And it was quite a small scale because I was renting, but I grew different kinds of herbs and tomatoes and just experimented with things. I was, my granddad, um, well, my great granddad had an allotment. And uh, so I'd grown up knowing that you could grow vegetables and that that was something that was a possibility and I don't that maybe that triggered a desire to try it for myself and then um, gradually the gardens just got bigger and bigger and mm-hmm. and when I started to have my family I that was when I started to own property and not have to move so much and um, again it was growing food to feed my family and we were really broke so it was practical as well as health reasons Mm-hmm. That's nice. You know, like being a homesteader, I think, you know, uh, you have done wonderful doing that. 
so have you always done no dig gardening and how much time does this take in your day or week okay no i haven't um so i was there's a gardener um that's very thought of with a great fondness called jeff hamilton in england he died some years ago but he was on a program called gardener's world mm-hmm. and he was one of the last of the kind of gardeners that looked like they actually did gardening um had grubby hands and big jumpers and my mum gave me his gardening book his organic gardening book and uh-huh. um yes yeah, so and that was a digging book so and that's all I knew so I dug up until 12 or so years ago because that's oh. how I learned to garden that's what I thought one did okay so you have now transitioned to no dig gardening and you even have that wonderful book um organic no dig gardening with uh, charles so how is it that one can um achieve this no dig gardening everyone would think oh i go to the garden with my tools and get started but how is it that you know one does no dig gardening well how you start very much depends on what you've got so when i started it i already had my vegetable garden um set up i was just digging it it was um heavy clay here mm-hmm. so it was a lot of hard work and it was quite poor quality and then with that i just put some compost on the surface and i didn't dig anymore so every year i put a little bit of compost on the surface of the soil that's incorporated into the soil by the soil life and it feeds the soil and that's raises the plant so rather than digging and digging and digging every winter which is what i've been doing i just put some compost down it takes much less time I, there are other ways if you've got very weedy ground there's different ways that you can start um such as putting cardboard down which is a light suppressant mm-hmm. and then putting some compost on top of that um britain is pretty much the slug capital of the world we have lots and lots and lots of slugs we're quite obsessed mm-hmm. so that's why compost demulches are the best for annual vegetables and annual herbs and that kind of thing here because the kind of mulches that you can use in hotter drier climates such as straw or wood chip tend to create habitat for slugs and snails and wood lice okay so hence the obsession with compost oh um i don't blame you i think you know that uh, uh feeds the uh, vegetables and uh, plants really nicely and so yeah. i think uh, uh that's great Uh so is no dig is this methodology applicable globally how can one tailor make it to their climate and to suit where they live Yeah it is absolutely applicable globally um we get feedback all the time from people in different parts of the world um actually using compost mulches is pretty much applicable globally in some places you would put something on top such as hay or straw or grass clippings in the summer if you've got very very high temperatures to help with water um conservation mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it's I, we've yet to come across a place where it wouldn't be applicable i mean obviously there are some situations where it's just impossible to grow anything but assuming you can grow stuff there uh-huh. um there's people trying it all over the world 
which is lovely. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so is there like a, a certain type of soil that's more preferable than the other? Is there something like, okay, for proper growth and nourishment, you have to kind of, you know, go for a certain type? And how do you prepare the soil? And uh, so you talked about compost. Um, is there anything else as far as any natural manure, anything else that needs to go in? Um, well, composted manure is compost. So some people, uh, at my allotment, I've used just pure, well-rotted cow manure in the past. Um, so anything composted is generally good. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to soil types, it's suitable for all soil types. If you've got very, very, very sandy soil, usually it takes a few years for the soil to improve because it type you put your compost on the top and it kind of goes into it, you know, it, it goes mm-hmm. quite fast. But it does work really well. I mean, I don't grow on sandy soil, but I've communicated with people who do and they found it fantastic way of actually making um, that soil very fertile. Um, you can use natural feeds as well if you want, but generally, if you've got the compost, you don't need to. So it saves a lot of time because you're putting the compost down and there you are. Mm-hmm. So some good quality compost is all that we need. And uh, that's yeah. that's a great tip right there. You do this both as a homesteader and also on a commercial level, correct? Uh, yes, so actually, at the moment, I'm in the process of moving house, so mm-hmm. I'm not doing. I'm not working in the market garden anymore. But I've done it. Um, so I grow for myself and my family. And the illustration behind me is a friend of mine called Katie Shepherd. This is like to represent my homestead, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but also I've done it professionally. So I worked in a market garden um, for twelve years, on and off. I've run kitchen gardens for people. So usually on large private estates um, where I've been paid to be their kitchen gardener. So that's on a completely different scale where you're growing for a particular kind of client. That's Mm -hmm. very interesting. And it's been helpful for learning skills, which I can then use at home and then teach other people. It was good for experiment. Yeah, I do consultancy as well now. I don't sell my labour so much anymore. I've got enough with my own. I'm about to set up a new garden. That will be enough. But I do consultancy and things. That's fantastic. And so uh, you talked about allotment, which is, again, like the community garden type of space. Um, And uh, as far as um, the colder seasons, um, how can one still continue to grow? You know, uh, like greenhouses, the way to go. Uh, What is it that you do? Um, I have both. I have a greenhouse and a polytunnel in my back garden. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually in the winter, I use the polytunnel the most. Actually, my greenhouse is really, really old and it's got holes in it. Mm-hmm. So it's not very warm. It, I mostly use that as a propagating space. I have um, heat mats for raising plants in the spring. Um, and usually at the moment, my polytunnel is full of all my gardening equipment because I'm uh-huh. literally moving in a few weeks. So it's all my keeping dry. But normally it would be completely full now with um, salads and different kinds of herbs and brassicas and different greens. 
Um, I sow carrots for harvesting in, so I hope sow those in October for harvesting in March and April. Um, it's very cold here at the moment for mm-hmm. us, as far as we're concerned. Outside it feels about minus seven, mm-hmm. but we don't normally get temperatures like that for any length of time. We're all like panicking because, oh my goodness, it's really cold. So normally it'll get down to minus one or minus two centigrade I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit so things tend to keep absolutely fine in the polytunnel they get a little bit frozen but not enough that it harms them Um, if it was periods of time when it gets really really cold I then put fleece over the top and I make little polytunnels for my allotment beds so just really cloche hoops and polythene over the top so that is like a, a little baby polytunnel just to protect um, different plants that I might have outside. Okay. Um, we're lucky with our climate here. So most brassicas and things like that, they'll survive without any protection at all. So that's the cabbage family of plants, correct? Yes, yeah. Okay. And as far as, um, say, any new listener or anyone new to gardening, uh, would you point out what the difference would be between a polytunnel and a greenhouse? Okay, well, um, a polytunnel is big hoops and polythene over the top. Greenhouse is usually, it's either metal or timber with glass, and it can sometimes be polycarbonate. A greenhouse is, a a well-made greenhouse, not one with holes in like mine, (laughs) is um, much warmer than a polytunnel. Mm -hmm. Um, When I worked on a private estate, I had a greenhouse that was heated. It was warmer than my house. It was like amazing. Um, So a greenhouse is more substantial. It will last a lot longer. Um, It is a warmer environment, but it is much more expensive. Mm -hmm. So for my polytunnel is 12 feet by 40 feet and which is fantastic for like a size for a family. I've got three adult, well, young adult children, they're all students. And um, that is a lot cheaper. So you get for your money, a lot more covered space with a polytunnel than you do with a greenhouse. If I was very rich, I would get a massive greenhouse built. Mm-hmm. But when I move, I'm moving to Wales. So it's going to be cooler and wetter than it is where I am now in Somerset. And um there, I will be hoping to get a bigger polytunnel because um, I'll need a bit more protection year round. And I definitely couldn't afford to do that if it was a greenhouse. But I'd use a small greenhouse for propagation of things like aubergines, eggplant and um, peppers and all the things that need extra warmth. OK. So it's good to have both, actually. But if okay. you only can have one, then polytunnels <laughs> more space. Okay, since we touched upon polytunnel and the greenhouses, uh, why don't we talk about seasonal gardening and planting? And so if you can give us an idea of what to plant and when, and uh, what are some easy vegetables to grow for someone that's uh, starting? uh, Say we are all heading into spring almost. So what is it that one can do? Um, Well, that's actually a really big topic. I couldn't say like all of the vegetables and things. The best things to start with, if you're new to gardening, the best things to start with is something you really want to eat Mm -hmm. that's good to eat fresh. So that might be sweet corn, Mm -hmm. which is so much more delicious, picked fresh from the plant than it is bought from a store. 
or it might be tomatoes, which are, again, so much more delicious homegrown than anything you can buy. And you might do tomatoes and then grow some basil to grow with the tomatoes Mm -hmm. and some salad leaves and things to have like a lovely salad every day in the summer. So I think the thing to really is to decide what, I mean, I actually really like Brussels sprouts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like for me, I've got to have Brussels sprouts. I adore them. So it's finding out what you really like to eat and then look at a good book like No Dig Organic Home and Garden, which I wrote, Uh Uh, or in fact, Charles Dowding's website, which is his name, um, he's got a sowing timeline there, which has all the vegetables listed mm-hmm. and when to sow them. And he has one for the Southern Hemisphere as well. So people all around the world can check that out. Sowing times are really important. And I think a key thing is not to do it too early. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, there's um, so where were they? Early February. And a lot of people are saying on social media, sow your tomatoes now. Mm-hmm. Get your tomatoes going. They've been saying that since January. And actually, I wouldn't sow tomatoes until well into March because they grow quickly, they need warmth, and you've got to keep them warm until the last frost date. So that mm-hmm. depends where you live. So here in Somerset, which is quite mild, the last frost date is usually the middle of May. Mm-hmm. So I've got to think with my tomatoes that they don't want to get too big before I can put them in the polytunnel in the middle of May. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's for outside, the end of May, really. So it's looking at things like that, which is why I think if you're new, start with just a few things and learn how to do those really well and then gradually get bigger. So maybe just start with one bed and work your way on from there. Otherwise, you can get overwhelmed. Okay. And it stops so being fun. Is it something that people should start indoors at this point? Like start with seeds and uh, start sowing them and get them it, initiated indoors and then, you know, move yeah. them out? Yeah, it very much depends where you are. Um, normally, if I wasn't moving house, I would be starting sowing this weekend. I usually, well, I do my aubergines. Mm-hmm. the start of February, but I have heat mats and I have grow lights. So I can create the perfect environment for aubergines that actually don't want to live in England at all. They want to be somewhere hot and sunny. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that is, so that's why I do that. Then if I didn't have all of that, I would not be starting aubergines that early. Most of my sewing starts around Valentine's Day. It's mm-hmm. a good time for sewing here, but not of everything. That's like the big start of the year. But again, I'll only be sewing things that I know I can put outside, apart from aubergines. Things like spring onions, um, salads, that kind of thing, which are um, uh, cabbages, cauliflowers. I would start them in the greenhouse. And when they're little sturdy transplants, then they go outside. Mm-hmm. And that way they they get a good start in life. They get a, a good size so that if there are any slugs that come along, the whole plant doesn't get eaten. But it really very much depends where you are. If I was living in Scotland, mm-hmm. I wouldn't start sowing for another two weeks after that because their last frost date is later. Whereas if I lived in Cornwall, I could start earlier. So that's just important. Are, you know, in the British Isles. So it, it all depends where you are, really. 
Okay. So again, uh, aubergines, you know, those are the eggplants for yes. other listeners that are familiar with uh, uh, calling They're one of my favorites. Yes. As far as uh, zoning, you certainly, you know, pointed out people should look at their zone calendars and then plant accordingly. And that's a good yeah. place to start. So definitely, uh, you know, that's a great tip. What about uh, summer planting? And uh, what about autumn and winter? And what is it that one should do every season? Um, it's well, decide what you want to grow. And then look at when they it's good to have either a calendar or a diary or a notebook and mm -hmm. just look at when they need to go in which is different for every plant and then work backwards thinking okay if this needs to be planted in the garden on the, in this week then I need to sow it three weeks before or whatever it is mm -hmm. so for that you'd need a good gardening book or a good plan that you can have as reference usually that is better than looking at the seed packet often the seed packet can be a bit misleading mm -hmm. uh, I think it's almost as if they want people to sow too early so the plants die so they go and buy more seeds <laughs> so it is a lot to do with planning so for example to have a polytunnel full of plants all winter, I start sowing for that in September and mm -hmm. I plant them in October. So I'm always making sure that I'm keeping an eye on what needs to be sown every month, just checking my seeds and thinking, okay, this is what I need to do now. It is too big a subject to like give every single example though, obviously. Uh, obviously, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, planning, planning is key. Yeah. Certainly. As far as the motivation for someone to even take care of what's in their polytunnel or greenhouse in that cold weather, <laughs> what, what is it that you would say if there is something that can, you know, come from the expert? What, what is it that you would uh, say? Well, in the winter, the good thing about gardening is it does get you outside. And that's good for your physical health because you're moving about and exercising. It's good for your body because you're getting vitamin D even on cloudy days the sunlight is beneficial and it's also good for mental health because it's uplifting mm -hmm. um, just being outside even on a day like today which is there's a horrible cold wind uh, it's it lifts the spirits it's good to be around green things and of course the working with the plants and harvesting what you're going to eat for dinner you're eating fresh seasonal vegetables which helps with vitamins and boosting your immune system. So it sort of it has many different levels. Some parts of the world you cannot garden at all in the winter, really. Mm -hmm. But um, it is really worthwhile, even on horrible days. And the same in other times of the year. It, the nice thing about something like a polytunnel is you can be in there when it's pouring with rain. And it's quite magical. It's all pitter-patter and you're nice and dry. And outside it's horrible, but inside you'll still be able to work with plants. And also just have really good weather gear. Mm -hmm. So you can work outside in the pouring rain or the freezing cold. Okay. What about the snowy days, though? Um, snow, you can't do much. I mean, you can get in the polytunnel and the greenhouse. Um, though my greenhouse was completely frosted up this morning. I had to wait for it to defrost. Um but actual gardening outside in the snow or in a hard frost like we've got at the moment, the ground's been solid for several days. Um, you can't really do much. Go for a walk. <laughs>
<laughs> oh yeah, that's well said. Uh, so I guess we talked uh, everything in the context of, say, raised bed gardening, and you know, gardening in the poly tunnel or in the greenhouses. What about people that want to do container gardening or growing things in like uh, their patio garden or back backyard, like the back porch or the deck? Yeah, um, well, I grow in my back garden here. I've got um, a big area of concrete, which mm-hmm. has been there long before I ever lived here. So when my children were little, it was great. They whiz around on their little bikes, but it's not very pretty. And so I grow a lot of things in pots on there mm-hmm. um, to make a concrete area productive. So I fill the pots with compost, usually a mixture of shop-bought compost and homemade compost. I I make a lot of compost, I'm obsessed. Mm -hmm. And I grow different kinds of fruit trees, um, different herb plants. In the summer, I'll grow outdoor varieties of tomatoes and aubergines. Mm -hmm. And um, that's they're actually really easy to look after because those are the ones I'd probably make more of um, a plant food for. So I make it, I use nettles and comfrey mostly to make plant food because they grow wild where I live and they make good plant food. Mm-hmm. And then instead of adding compost every year because it would fall off the top because of the nature of the pot, I will some years use plant food and some years use a bit more compost. But it's it's surprising how much you can grow. And all of my plants that are in pots are moving house with me. So Mm -hmm. I've got trees, big trees, bigger than me, in pots that these guys removing me are going to have to take. (laughs) So that's the good thing about container gardening is if you move house, you can take it with you. Oh, yes. Back in a moment with our guest on Fresh Leaf Forever. about fruits so what fruits do you grow in your container garden oh well in the container I've got my favorite is I've got a nectarine mm-hmm. and that actually grows just outside the my home office and um, I love it because it's a bit special for this climate and the fruit is incredible normally I would have you'd have to go to Spain or Portugal or somewhere to taste fruit like that oh it's lovely And um, so that's my favourite. I also grow different kinds of citrus. I've got lemons and limes and I've got a medlar. Do you have medlars where you are? Mm, No, I've not heard of of that unless it's called differently. It might be. Have Have a look on Google. It's a very old fruit and it's quite strange. You get these beautiful flowers. It's so pretty. And then the ugliest fruit you've ever seen. It's super ugly, small, mm-hmm. small fruits, about a bit smaller than a plum. And um, so very ugly. And I pick the ugly fruit in late October time. Mm-hmm. And then I put it in a bowl in my house and let it rot for three mm-hmm. weeks. And from that, you make... Um, different preserves and the flavor is amazing so it's it's quite a strange plant and I do like that enormously because it's different it's not the sort of thing I can't go to my local shop and buy meddlers and the other fruits I've got apples pears um, cherries and um, most of the rest of the fruit I've got growing in the ground but and what you can get is um, 
particular dwarfing rootstocks. So the plant has been grafted onto a root system that makes it happy to live in a pot. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to grow into a giant tree. Though I've got success with apple trees that I bought from a supermarket very cheaply, just a few pounds in a pot, and I just keep them pruned and they're quite happy. So that's a cheap way of getting fruit trees in a pot. Just Okay. How do you feed your vegetables or your fruit that are grown either on the ground or in the container? How often do you take care of anything, you know, supplemental that you do? You start with compost and then how often do you replenish anything that they need? So if it's in the ground and I've put compost, then that's once a year and that's it. No other feeds, nothing, nothing needed at all. Pots are slightly different. So they're the ones where I will make comfrey and nettle feed um, for those. And that's because I can't keep adding compost every year. When you add it in the ground, the way it reacts with the soil life, you don't end up getting higher and higher and higher. It keeps about the same level. But in pots, because they're not connected with the ground in the same way, mm-hmm. it can get too full. So they get they get feeds. But I, I do, including the polytunnel, I just put compost in that once a year. And that's it. That's all it gets. So it really is so easy. Yeah, that that is very encouraging. That just makes me uh, want to just, you know, do my own composting and go for that high quality compost. And (laughs) that just seems to make the job so much easier. So how is it that you build your ecosystem within your garden? Oh, now that's one of the things I'm really, really keen on. So with the no dig and the compost, that is creating an ideal ecosystem in the soil, which is crucial, of course. Mm -hmm. When you dig, you break up the mycorrhizal fungi. When you, by not digging, and I don't fork either, no digging at all, unless I've got to make a hole for a tree, Mm -hmm. but that's just once. Um, All the mycorrhizal fungi networks are intact. Um, The soil life is intact, and it also helps lock carbon in the ground. It's good for environment that way. Um, But with the rest of the garden, I grow different kinds of plants to encourage um, greater biodiversity. So I have some plants which attract beneficial predators. So I'm wanting different kinds of wasps and hoverflies and ladybirds because they'll come and they eat different kinds of insects that Mm -hmm. I don't want on my garden. So I do that. I have... And a lot of these are are what we consider weeds, but I don't grow the weeds in my vegetable bed. They're all around like wild edges. I try and have things flowering year round so that there's always something for any foraging insects to find. I have areas where I've got um, twigs and leaves all piled up so things can live in there. They can hibernate in there. Um, I have brassicas flowering as much as possible year round. Mm -hmm. They're important because they bring in certain types of parasitic wasp that attack um, the caterpillars of cabbage white butterflies. So it keeps it in balance. It's all about having the balance. So I do need some bugs because if I don't have the bugs, I won't have the predators Mm -hmm. and everything balances out. I have a lot of birds here as well. And so I make sure there's things that are, particularly in the winter, I don't cut things back that are full of seeds so that, you know, on a day like today when they can't 
peck at the ground. There's seeds and things for the birds to eat. I've got a pond. Um, the frogs have just come back. They've just started making their uh, frog mm-hmm. spawn. Um, I put water down in small dishes for the birds and also ones filled with stones for um, bees and wasps. They not at the same time. They're not friends. I'm obsessed with wasps. I love wasps. Wasps are totally underrated. Wasps mm-hmm. are just as important as bees, as pollinators, and they kill so many insects. So I don't use any um, herbicide, or not herbicides, when we're talking about any pest. I don't use herbicides either. I don't use any pesticides at all. I use um, crop protection of certain things because pigeons will eat brassicas if I don't cover them here. Mm-hmm. But it's so it's very, very diverse. I have toads in the back garden, um, all kinds of creatures. And there's a bit of a balance with sharing. So I will, um, some of the fruit I protect completely, such as cherries. I have one cherry tree and that I cover with mesh when they're ripening or else I will lose the lot mm-hmm. in, in a day. Um, but most things I make sure there's different berries and things for the birds as well as for me. So, so it's lovely. The nice thing is actually the family moving into my house in a few weeks. They've got two little children and they've lived in a city before. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things they're so excited about is the fact that there's all these different wild creatures here. Mm-hmm. I make little houses for the wild creatures to hibernate. It's just such a nice way of gardening. I'm, I'm excited about doing it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. And I think in all these uh, garden aesthetics, you know, the wind chimes, the bird feeder and all of that, I think, you know, definitely uh, it, they add to the beauty. Plus, you know, I think they are so helpful uh, in achieving, you know, all this, uh, uh, that uh, building the ecosystem, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, and you also pointed out, about netting and protective stuff against animals and uh, other mammals. Yeah, here we see rabbits, deer, and that can come and eat uh, stuff. So I think the netting becomes important. What about figs? Uh, Would you also cover them? uh, I leave my figs alone, generally. Um, I have in the past covered them. When we had three weeks of really bad weather a few years ago, I covered my, I've got a massive fig too big to move with me in the front garden. Um, and that I covered with um, in, with um, EnviroMesh, not EnviroMesh, sorry, um, fleece mm-hmm. during um, the very cold weather to protect it. Um, but generally I just leave the figs alone because it's a bit big. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of shared. But gen- sometimes you see a beak mark in the figs, but mostly they're okay. What about the tomatoes, uh, the eggplants and everything, or even the rose shrubs, you know, sometimes you see these white spots and the beetles and whatnot, you know, come and, you know, get them. So how is it that you take care of them? Like, again, is there something you can do? Uh, it's, it's getting the predators in. And that's what I do. So I just make sure that and it's take, it takes a little while. You can't just plant all these plants and then think, oh, they're all going to come immediately. But then they learn this is a good place to be and they raise their families here and you get all the predators. Um, that's basically what I do. I don't use anything else. I mean, if the plant is in good soil and it's healthy, 
then generally that helps it fight off any attack by creepy crawlers. I mean, it very much depends on what the insect is. Occasionally, I'll get red spider mite in the polytunnel. Mm-hmm. And um, that I will, I'll squirt that with water because it hates being wet. And that can kill off a whole plant. But I just will hose that down with water. But mostly um, I don't um, treat anything with anything. Because also if I, if you treat a plant for maybe aphids, then you're also going to be harming anything else that goes on that plant, including the creatures that want to eat your aphids. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure, you know, if I only had one beloved rose bush, then yeah, I'd pick off any bugs that if it wasn't, if it was struggling, but it's, um, yeah, biodiversity is generally the key. Awesome. What about any um, uh, coffee grains or seeds or uh, eggshells or anything else, you know, that can possibly uh, help nourish the plants? All of those go in the compost heap. Okay. I don't put, I put coffee in the compost, but I wouldn't put it on the ground. It's not so good for the ground, really. There's one or two plants that quite like it, but mostly in the compost. And I have different composting systems. So I have some which are all garden waste, kitchen waste, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. peelings, cardboard, whatever. Um, so kind of normal composting systems. And then I have um, two ones called hot bins, which you can put food waste in as well. Mm-hmm. So, and they are a very thick um, insulated fab- uh, plasticky stuff, which the rats don't smell it. So rats, I'm in the countryside, we get rats. They don't smell the the rotting food and it composts at a really high temperature. Mm -hmm. So you can get quite a lot of compost in about three months and put anything you like in there, cheese, fish heads, cooked pasta, whatever can Mm -hmm. get composted. Um, So in a normal time, there's anything, all food-based things in my house can go in one or the other of the composting systems Mm -hmm. so we can compost everything which is great I also have bakashi which ferments food waste and then that goes in the normal composters and I have a wormery and certain things go in the wormery for for worm compost I mean I'm a garden writer which is why I've got all of these different things normal people (laughs) wouldn't quite want all of them I think but I need to try everything out so I can advise and recommend Oh, absolutely. I think uh, this is great stuff. So the listeners can certainly at least follow one or the other. And obviously, they can go to your book. And uh, that's almost like, you know, the Bible of the gardening world. (laughs) uh, (laughs) And what about common garden problems like overwatering, underwatering and things like that? Yes, it's not good to do either. I mean, usually you can tell if a plant's underwater because it starts drooping and looking mm-hmm. really sorrowful and overwatering can be just as bad particularly if it's in a tray and the roots get waterlogged so it's just trying to work out for the plant depending on where it's growing how much water it actually needs usually the compost mulch helps conserve moisture mm-hmm. so most of the time uh, once things have been planted in the garden and watered in then quite often they don't need watering much at all unless we have a period of very dry weather. So 
nature just takes cares of takes care of it for you my polytunnel obviously is an artificial environment um in the winter probably only water every three or four weeks in the summer it can be two or three times a week depending on how hot it is and how much sunshine we're having so it's really just a question of observing the plants and seeing how they're coping one thing that's a bit of a myth is we're often told don't water plants on a sunny day mm-hmm. um, because it will frazzle them. And it doesn't. It's absolutely fine. So it's better to water in the morning if you can, just because it's you're going to lose less to the atmosphere. And it's better not to water in the evening because it makes a damp environment and the slugs can come along. Mm-hmm. But if your plant's looking droopy, water it, you know, it's, there's no hard, no fixed rules. Okay. It's almost like how we need hydration during a hot summer day. And yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. And uh, that makes total sense. So what about seed saving? What can be saved and what shouldn't be saved? Um, I save what I can. Um, with seed saving, it's very based on how much space you've got. Some plants like tomatoes if you um, are very easy to save seed from. And other ones are more complicated, like beetroot, where you have to have a certain number of plants to cross-pollinate with each other to have healthy genetic strains. So, and that takes quite a bit of space. It very much depends how much space you've got. So, for example, I would I saved all the seeds of the tomato of the tomatoes that are not F1 hybrids. So you only would save seeds from heritage varieties, nothing that is an F1 hybrid, because F1 hybrids don't come true. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense um, to save seeds from things that aren't. I would not save seeds from carrots here because we have quite a lot of um, native wild carrot varieties and some of them are very poisonous and there's a small risk that with wind pol- pollination they cross pollinate and you'd get some horrible mutant thing with your seeds. Mm-hmm. I don't save the seeds from squash or courgettes, zucchini, because they cross pollinate like mad mm-hmm. and all of the uh, these, this type of plant, this family of plants, they have um, a latent gene, which is bitter and toxic. And so most of the time, if you save the seed from a squash, you might get something that looks like the parent. You might get something that looks weird and tastes awful, but it'll just be bleh. But you have a very small but real risk of getting something that's poisonous. Mm-hmm. And you'll know it's poisonous because it will be bitter. And Sadly, uh, people can get very ill and occasionally die of this. So too much. I'd rather know. And squash takes so much space. So I want to know that what I'm growing is exactly the flavour and the size and the type of squash that I want. So I always buy those new every year. I buy them from heritage seed companies. But other things like peas and beans are easy to save seed from. And if the beans are cross-pollinated, you'll just get something curious. It won't be harmful. I save a lot of my edible flower seeds, my marigolds, calendula, borage, that kind of thing. They're very easy to save seed from. There's some really good seed saving books as well. So if it's something you want to do a lot of, it's worthwhile getting some of those. 
um, to just see which ones are good to save in your area. Okay. Again, probably, you know, getting the seeds from and uh, following a proper cleansing and drying process, all of that can be learned from some good books. Okay. I mean, there's how to save tomato seeds is on my blog and some things it's just literally waiting for them to dry on the plant. And then once they're completely dry and rustly, pop them in an envelope and there you are, that's it. And other things, yes, for sure, they're a little bit more complicated mm-hmm. or else they'll rot. Uh-huh. And also make sure where you source your seeds from and that way, you know, you know that you're always buying the good quality yes. ones. Okay. It's nice to support small companies if you can. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not always possible. Mm-hmm. And how do you store your produce after harvest you know how can you preserve them and also how can you prepare your garden for future seasons okay so preserving some things like squash you put them on the windowsill after harvest for a couple of weeks to cure they just make sure it's thoroughly dry and I store those on a shelf in the kitchen and they're there all through till May just take them when I eat them other things like potatoes I put in sacks I store carrots and beetroot in the ground through the winter because the climate here is okay for that. I cover them with um, protective covering just to keep the worst of the weather off. Onions, garlic, they just hang in bunches. They're quite easy. Mm -hmm. I also, things, I've got a dehydrator. So I dehydrate a lot of vegetables and herbs and fruit. So, you know, we've got love jars of dehydrated pears and apples and things. Um, I've got a water bath canner. So I do a lot of preserving different jars. Mine's um, a German one and a WEC. So I've got these nice jars where I store different kinds of preserves in those. Anything from tomato sauces to pickles to chutneys. I dream of having a pressure canner. I really want one. But um, they're really not so easy to get hold of in in the UK and they're more expensive. And mm-hmm. I see American homesteaders and they've got pressure canners and I'm bring one to me. <laughs> That's my dream. Oh, I'll uh, get you one if I <laughs> get to come see you. Is <laughs> yeah. uh, that is what I want. So um yeah, so that I do that and um things like beans, I grow beans for drying and they dry on the plant or sometimes I have to dry them on racks. And then when they're totally dry, they just go in jars on the shelf. Very. Simple. And what kind of beans are you referring to, Steph? Right. My favourites are czar bean, which is a kind of white runner bean. Mm-hmm. And that can be used like a butter bean. And gigantes, which is a Greek version of a bit bigger than that. And that, so that's quite a big white bean. Not as productive, but the flavour is so good. Mm-hmm. And bolotti beans, which are Italian, they're really good. So that's a nice speckledy brown bean, some different flavour. And I like to grow some cannellini beans as well, so you get the little white beans, which are good for different things. I have loads, loads of different sorts. Mm-hmm. I've got one which is like a really mad blue colour, which I'm quite excited about. I grow, you know, speckledy black and white ones just because they look good as well, because mm-hmm. um, it's fun. Yeah, so there's there's lots to choose from, and it's nice that it's becoming more well-known about growing beans for drying so that the seed companies have more choice. And they do have some which are bush beans, so 
you don't need lots of space. You can grow a few in pots. Yeah, so there's lots of different varieties and it's choosing one that kind of gives you pleasure, really. Oh, absolutely. How is it that one can be a homesteader with a green thumb? Is it natural or is it something that can be cultivated? Oh, definitely, definitely you can learn to do it. Definitely. I think it's, uh, and I've also, you come across people, don't you, that have not grown a thing until they're sort of 63 and then suddenly start growing a garden. And also, so it's definitely something you can learn. And also, I think it's, you can definitely do it in any space. There's, you don't have to have chickens and geese and ducks you can just have a window box and that is still your own little homestead I think it's you can also do that kind of home preserving thing by going to your farmer's market or your supermarket and buy things from there and preserve them yourself because it's not that's fine too you know we all do what we can Mm-hmm. where we are so when I move for example I'm not going to have any homegrown vegetables I'm going to have to go to the farmer's market to get those to make my food whatever size and you definitely can learn it absolutely thank you so much and it's been such a pleasure having you on the show and uh, I think the listeners would thoroughly appreciate your insights and I'm sure everyone would be super excited to start their own garden this spring and oh, uh, grow year round. And if you can tell us how people can reach you, how people can follow you and about your book one more time. And I know there's another book coming as well next year. So yeah, well, my, my books are, so there's No Dig Organic Home and Garden, which I wrote with Charles. And then I've also got a recipe book, which is entirely plant-based. Mm-hmm. So everything can be grown more or less in there and that's called the creative kitchen and then I'm currently writing a book about growing year round which will have a lot to do with growing in polytunnels and in places where things that you can make yourself so for all budgets so if you can afford a polytunnel great if you can't I explain this is how you can make things this is how you can grow and that's been delayed because of the move mm-hmm. uh, but hopefully autumn or later this year that will be out it's nearly finished conveniently I've got quite an unusual surname so generally if you look for Stephanie Hafferty you get me which is very handy uh-huh. um, but my my website is stephaniehafferty.co.uk and I write a blog for that which usually I write year round soon I will be writing about my setting up my new garden mm-hmm. so that I'm looking forward to doing that on the blog um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter I'll either, um, I'm either Stephanie or Steph one or the other in those Hafferty. So my Instagram account is the one I generally update every day and I'll be, I catalogue everything that I'm doing there, different photographs and things of my garden. Oh, I enjoy following that. Oh, thank you. I will be setting up a YouTube channel when I've moved as well, which surprisingly will be called Stephanie Hafferty. (laughs) (laughs) Bit of a theme. It's like easy. I can always remember what things are called then. Well, that's interesting and fascinating insights. Thank you so much for being with us today and certainly look forward to many more discussions in the future. Thanks a lot, Steph. Have a safe and happy move and uh, have a wonderful time setting up your new garden in the new place. Thank you. Hope you all found that conversation very interesting and useful and inspiring to start your own home garden. I'll make sure to include Stephanie's contacts in the show notes 
And as always, send me your feedback and follow me on Instagram at Fresh Leaf Forever and on Twitter at Fresh Leaf Forever One. I'll be back again with another interesting guest and another interesting episode next week. Until then, it's Vi saying so long. <music>